The Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number 10, Green Arrow by Mike Grell, part one. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris. And in this episode, I'll be taking a look at the influential and controversial Mike Grell run on Green Arrow. Now, Green Arrow has a long and interesting publication history. The character was first created back in 1941. He appeared in More Fun Comics number 73, debuting in the same issue as the first appearance of Aquaman. Both Green Arrow and Aquaman were created by the legendary DC editor Mort Weisinger. Now, Weisinger later became much more famous, of course, as the editor of the entire line of Superman comics, and that ended up playing a pretty key role in Green Arrow surviving. During the 1950s, when most superheroes disappeared from the face of the Earth, Green Arrow was one of the very few who remained in publication, and that's for... Pretty simple reason. It's because Mort Weisinger created him, and as a result, he decided to keep both Green Arrow and Aquaman around as backup features in various different Superman books of the time. So after moving from more fun over to adventure, he had a long, long run as a backup feature in adventure. He eventually moved over to World's Finest for a long time as a backup feature. So as a result, from his creation in 1941 until 1964, he enjoyed over 20 years of continual publication as backup feature. Now, there was a brief period in the mid-60s to late-60s where he was just a, a bit player in the pages of Justice League, but in 1969, the character was revamped by writer Denny O'Neill and artist Neil Adams in Brave and the Bold number 85. It gave him the look that most fans now associate with him, a sort of a Robin Hood-based look with a goatee, and it also gave him a new sort of a liberal political agenda. And beginning with that issue, he, he quickly became a co-star just a few months later in the struggling Green Lantern book, leading to the legendary Hard Traveling Heroes series where O'Neill and Adams had Green Lantern paired up with the Green Arrow. So beginning with there in 1969, Green Arrow again had a long, long run in various books, whether it was as a co-star with Green Lantern, uh, as a backup feature in Action Comics. Again, he had a backup feature for a while in in World's Finest again. And at one point, he had some of these going on simultaneously where he was had his own solo strip in World's Finest and was co-starring in the Green Lantern book. And this continued all the way into the 80s when he his backup feature eventually switched over to the Detective Comics. But despite the success, despite being almost published almost continuously from 1941 until 1986. During that 45-year period, he never had his own ongoing monthly title. In 1983, they did finally give Green Arrow his own solo book, but it was a four-issue limited series, and it was never followed up on in terms of a regular series. There were also some other aborted attempts to give him his own solo book. At one point, he had a book with uh, called Green Arrow and Black Canary that was supposed to debut in the pages of First Issue Special number 14. We discussed that in an earlier podcast. Of course, that series ended up getting canceled number 13, and that tryout book never materialized. But the result is that uh, Green Arrow is a character who was popular enough to stick around for five decades. 
but never got a shot at carrying his own book. That all changed in 1986 and 1987 when a number of things took place that changed the marketplace and changed how DC Comics worked. And that all began, of course, with Crisis on Infinite Earths. As most fans know, in 1986, DC Comics rebooted their entire universe with Crisis on Infinite Earths, and this led to new versions of old characters appearing. Sometimes the changes were minor, such as in Batman. Sometimes they were more pronounced, like with a Superman mythos. Sometimes the character was completely rebooted, like with Wonder Woman. This kicked off an era at DC where experimentation was at the forefront. They were trying new formats, they were trying new characters, new styles of storytelling. And one of the most influential books that came out during this time period was, of course, Frank Miller's Forshoe Dark Knight limited series. That proved to be extremely popular with fans, and it was both a financial and a creative windfall for DC Comics, because not only did they get a lot of critical acclaim for the series, the bigger and more expensive format proved to be a real moneymaker for them as well. So after the success of The Dark Knight, DC was looking to sort of replicate that. And that led to what would become the seminal series, The Longbow Hunters by Mike Grell. Now, the way they got to that point is, is interesting. Mike Grell was a fan favorite artist who had started at DC doing books like The Legion of Superheroes and... Green Lantern and Green Arrow. He started drawing that in 1976. He had previously drawn Green Arrow already in the backup feature in Action Comics for a while. And he was known in his early days for having a style that was, to put it kindly, reminiscent of Neil Adams. Other people would say he was a Neil Adams ripoff. But he was a fan favorite and was closely associated with Green Arrow as a character. After leaving Green Lantern and Green Arrow, Grell created Warlord. He was writing and drawing that. It became one of DC's most popular series. But Grell basically jumped ship from DC in the early 1980s and embraced the new wave of independent publishers that were coming out like Eclipse and First Comics. And he ended up doing a Warlord-style series called Star Slayer, and then after that he created a series called John Sable. Now, John Sable will turn out to be a very important series, not just for Grell personally and for fans of independent comics, but also in terms of the development of Green Arrow. As a character, John Sable is basically a big game hunter and a mercenary, but he was sort of a mercenary in the style of the A-Team. You know, he only took on clients that needed help. You know, he's kind of a good guy uh, with, a, you know, this gruff exterior, like, oh, you got to pay me. But inside he has a heart of gold. And he uses his skills as a hunter to solve whatever case he's given. Now, in the early days of John Sable, Mike Grell had an editor by the name of Mike Gold, who had previously worked at DC as well. Gold ended up leaving First Comics to go back to DC as an editor. And after the success of The Dark Knight, Mike Gold basically went to Mike Grell and said, you know, how, how would you like to come back to DC? What character would you want to work on? What can we do to get you back here? Now, according to Mike Grell, this offer came at a really good time for him. He was frustrated with First Comics at that time. He was having trouble getting paid, but there were some licensing issues that prevented him from uh, taking 
John Sable to a different publisher. So what he basically decided to do was to leave the book himself, put other people on the book, because he felt like since the character was so closely associated with him and his fans were the ones buying the book, that the title would basically end up getting canceled if other people were working on it, which means the rights to publish it would revert to him sooner. So he kind of decided to leave the book in a way to sabotage his own series. The important part is, though, he was looking for other work and a way to get out of this. And so when Mike Gold approached him with the idea of coming back to DC, Grell was like, okay, he was open to the idea. And his first suggestion was that he really wanted to work on Batman and do a follow-up. I don't know if if it would have been plot-wise or just a tonal follow-up. But he wanted to, to pick up where Frank Miller had left off, at least thematically, with the Batman. He wanted to do Batman and carry on in that vein. But Mike Gold had a different idea in mind. He said, what if we did Green Arrow instead? And the idea is Green Arrow as an urban hunter. So basically taking the Green Arrow character and sort of infusing him with a lot of the things character traits and the plot ideas and the themes that Grell had been exploring in John Sable. Grell agreed to do this. He thought this was a, a perfect opportunity for him to, again, get out of what was happening at First Comics, get a much wider audience and more money for his stories. So he agreed to do a three-issue series in the same format as The Dark Knight. So it was like, um, not really a hardbound, but uh, like... Um, Thick stock covers like 48 pages instead of the, the usual 22, and all um, meticulously drawn and written by Mike Grell. That series, of course, was The Longbow Hunters, debuted with a cover date of August 1987. And after that series finished, the sales on it were so high and the critical acclaim was high enough that DC pretty much immediately gave the green light, no pun intended, to an ongoing series. And that launched in 19, at the beginning of 1988 with Grell as the writer and Ed Hannigan as the artist initially. And Grell ended up writing Green Arrow for 80 issues of adult-themed, politically charged, controversial, interesting, and violent stories only sort of set in the DC universe. So I'm going to get into that now. I'm going to start with the Longbow Hunters, and then I'm going to explore all 80 issues of Mike Grell's influential run on Green Arrow. So for fans of the character, the first issue of Longbow Hunters must have been just a major shock to the system because Mike Grell manages to stuff the first issue with just a ton of stuff, completely changing the character's status quo and setting up everything he was going to do over the next several years right in this first issue. The story begins with Oliver Queen, Green Arrow, and his longtime girlfriend, lover, partner, whatever you want to call her, Black Canary, a.k.a. Dinah Lance, just arriving in Seattle. They've decided to move to Seattle, cross-country, and sort of get away from their previous life and set up this new, this new life in the Pacific Northwest. And right off the bat, this is different than any other DC comic, not just of the time period, but 
one of the big differences between DC Comics and Marvel Comics is that DC Comics take place in a fictional world and Marvel takes place in the real world. And what I mean by that is the DC heroes are operating out of places like Metropolis, Gotham City, Central City, Star City, Coastal City, all these made-up analogs for different cities, you know. Whereas Marvel's mostly in New York, but it's in they're in real cities, New York, San Francisco, whatever. So Grell is establishing right up front that not only is this not like other DC comics, it's grounded in realism. These are real people in a real place. And that's what the whole issue and the series is basically about. The idea that these are real people, so there's no trick arrows. They talk about in the first issue, out the window, no trick arrows in the entire run. There's no superheroes, no costumed superheroes. There's no supervillains. And the issues being dealt with right here in this first issue are serial killers, prostitution, sex, drugs, people overdosing on the streets, homeless people. And one of the main characters, uh, you know, that Ollie is tracking down in the first issue is basically a psychopath dealing with trauma that he suffered from his time in Vietnam. So it's all like big ticket real world issues about as far away as you can get from escapism superhero comics as possible. And yet unlike The Dark Knight, which is still superhero comics just amped up to 12, this is actually taking place in continuity in the DC universe. You know, the Dark Knight and Watchmen, those are they take place in alternate worlds, alternate futures, you know, they don't have any impact on the DC universe. This is taking place inside the DC universe, but without any of the trappings or conventions that you associate with the DC universe. And it's not just the settings and the situations that are realistic. There's a really interesting conversation right in the beginning of this issue where Ollie basically tells Dinah that he wants to have kids. He wants to become a father. Um, and she tells him no. She doesn't want to have kids because of the line of work they're in. It's too dangerous and she can't do that to children. You know, it's, it's like, how could they bring kids into the world knowing that at any time they could go on a mission and never return? It's just, she refuses to do it. And it really bothers Ollie. Uh, and the whole scene is extremely important for setting up who the characters are and where their arc is going to go over the next several years. But it's also important just to set the tone. These are real people with real adult relationship issues. And again, another thing that he does in this issue is he establishes Green Arrow's age. It's not one of these sort of perpetually 29 things where the superheroes never age and nothing ever happens in real time. And no matter how many stories they go through, they're always exactly the same. It's established in this issue that it he's... He's just celebrating his 43rd birthday in this issue. And throughout the run, he ages in real time and has birthdays every year um, until, you know, by the end of the series, I think it takes place right after his 48th birthday when Grell ends up leaving the series. So he packs in a ton of stuff in this first issue, all accompanied by amazing artwork and some really thought-provoking character decisions. And all of this is in the framework of... There is also this ongoing mystery of 
another bowman who is also seems to be going across country parallel with their trip, only this other bowman is killing what seems like random people. At the end of the issue, this bowman shows up, and it's a Japanese woman whose name we later find out is Shadow. And Shadow is going to be an extremely important character for the entire series and for Ollie, Ollie's character arc, and just for the whole mythology of what Grell is doing with the series. So in terms of a first issue, I mean, couldn't get more or more interesting stuff than what Grell provides here, which makes you wonder, like, how could he top that in issue two? Well, he tops that in issue two by creating one of the most controversial and debated, hotly debated Green Arrow stories of all time, an issue that people are still arguing about even now. So as I mentioned, there were basically three plots going on in the first issue of Longbow Hunters, seemingly unrelated plots. The first was Ollie trying to track down a serial killer who was killing prostitutes. That got resolved during the first issue. The other two plots, though, were Shadow hunting down seemingly random targets, which, as we'll see in this issue, number two, were not actually random. And Dinah, Black Canary, on a mission to find out who is supplying drugs to the kids in the neighborhood, one of them overdosed in the first issue. In the second issue, those plot lines converge. Ollie is starting to try and track down Shadow to find out who she is and why she's killing these dudes. Dinah gets leads on the drug uh, dealers and disappears. Eventually, it turns out that the the higher-ups that are running the drug operation are the same people that Shadow is hunting down. And Green Arrow and Shadow, they don't team up, but they show up at the warehouse at the same time. And when they get there, Dinah is being tortured. She's basically stripped naked except for this shirt um, that she has. And she's hanging from this thing, and this guy's torturing her. And Oliver kills the guy. It shoots him through the head with an arrow and kills him. And Shadow runs off and Ollie, you know, rescues Dinah and that's where the issue ends. Now there's a lot of things to unpack here and discuss, um, but I'm actually going to wait a little bit to talk about it. And I want to talk about issue three first and then I'm going to circle back because a lot of the stuff that happens in this issue, Grell returns to and deals with in the first two issues of the ongoing series. So let me just jump right ahead to issue three. In issue three, what we learn is that... Is a, convoluted story, but it's part of uh, Shadow's origin story. Basically, back during World War II, Shadow's father was working for the Yakuza. He had all this money in the United States, like millions of dollars. He was sent to a Japanese internment camp during World War II, a camp for Japanese Americans. Some of the corrupt uh, U.S. officials who were running the camp found out about all the money that he had hidden away. And after the war, they basically tracked him down and tortured him and tortured his wife and found got the location of the hidden money. They went and they stole the money. As a result of this, uh, Shadow's father was disgraced. And to regain his honor, he had to commit suicide. And he also gave Shadow over to the Yakuza 
to be raised as one of their assassins. So now she's on this mission to reclaim her family honor by tracking down and killing all of the men who had done this crime. Now this is 40 years later, so the men now are on their 60s and 70s, and they're all rich with all these CIA contacts because they were all uh, members of the OSS originally, so they were part of the founders of the CIA. So they have higher-ups in the government protecting them, and this is going to come into play again a, a little bit later. So they have higher-ups in the government protecting them, and in issue three, we discover that the government is funneling money to the Contras through this drug operation being run by these guys. Basically, Shadow and Ollie track down the bad guys, they kill the bad guys, there's sort of a standoff with the CIA, and they have all this laundered money, and at the end the CIA is like, you know what, keep the money, uh, we'll just wash our hands of this whole situation, pretend this didn't, didn't happen. So Ollie is left with this bag with hundreds of thousands of dollars in it, wondering what what to do with it. And that's pretty much where the issue ends. Now, there are a couple things about this issue that are pretty interesting. The first is that one of the agents working for the CIA is a guy named Eddie Fires. And Eddie Fires becomes a recurring character. He has His role in this issue is extremely minor. He does almost nothing. He's just one of the thugs. But he does get a little screen time. It's kind of... It does seem like Grell is setting him up for bigger things in this issue because he, he doesn't get killed at the end like most of the bad guys. Longtime comic fans who read this issue may recognize Eddie Fires, or they may not. I didn't. But once it's pointed out, it's pretty obvious that Grell intentionally designed the character to resemble Archie Goodwin, uh, the legendary editor who was editor-in-chief at Marvel for a while. He was a writer for a lot of different companies, but mainly DC. He edited the epic line at Marvel. Um, just a real important seminal figure in comics. And he's a little mousy guy with big glasses and a big mustache and a big nose. And um, in an interview, Grell said that he, when he met Archie Goodwin, you know, Archie Goodwin looks like a little nerdy guy, but he was actually really strong and wiry and super tough. And so he wanted to make a character that looked like a pushover so you would underestimate his abilities but he turns out to be just as tough and cunning and dangerous as Oliver Queen himself or anybody else who appears in the series. The other thing that's interesting is this story where the government is illegally funneling money to the Contras. Um, this story actually came out before the Iran-Contra scandal broke. So for those who aren't politically minded in the late 80s, uh, it was discovered that the CIA was running this operation where they were, it was a complicated deal, but it involved um, paying off Iran to release hostages. And that money was then like being funneled somehow to the Contras in Nicaragua, which is, which is like a rebel organization. So Grell basically nailed the larger part of that scheme several months before it was made public. And he said in an interview that when the Iran-Contra scandal broke, he had media like coming to him, asking him, how did you know about this? And he was basically like, well, I just put the pieces together. It just seemed like, uh, you know, he didn't actually know, but he thought that something like this seemed plausible and even likely. And it turned out he was dead on. So he sort of, uh, this is an instance of, of comics really 
predicting the future. So that's the three issues of the Longbow Hunters. If I have any criticism of the series, it's that it's it's a little episodic. Um, there is an overall storyline, but it's, each issue is sort of its own thing, and the plot only sort of hangs together. It's, it's not very tight. Having said that, there's so many great things about this series. For my money, I think it's superior to The Dark Knight. Uh, I know that's a controversial statement, and Frank Miller fans will be up in arms and everything, but I think this is... I just think it's better. It's better written and it's better drawn. The political content is more interesting to me. The character work is far superior. I don't know. I just, I'm only making the comparison because this series was a direct result of the success of The Dark Knight and it was similar in that it was taking an established DC character and putting a grittier, darker spin on the character and it was widely compared, the two series were widely compared at the time. It's really the most important Green Arrow story that's ever been published, in my personal opinion. There, there are a couple other contenders. Again, the Brave and the Bold 85, uh, where Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill redesigned the character, is extremely important issue. Uh, Justice League of America number 75 is a really underrated key issue that goes under the radar, where... It's really more about um, Black Canary, but it's a seminal issue where his relationship with Black Canary starts. And of course, Green Lantern, Green Arrow 76 is a key issue. But I think Longbow Hunters is the most important Green Arrow storyline. It redefined the character. It made the character more popular than it ever been before. And it's just a great story. All right, having said all that, let's get back to issue two. So in the first two issues of the ongoing series, which launched at the beginning of 1988, Grell immediately dives right back into the aftermath of what happened in the Longbow Hunters. There was a lot of criticism for the sequence where Diana was tortured. And that criticism is, I think it's justified in some ways. Uh, it's definitely something that needs to be discussed. There was a lot of talk in the comics at the time and in the letter column, and I'll be talking more about the Green Arrow letter column later on, but there's a lot of talk in the letter column about the idea of violence against women in comics, specifically the idea of using basically violence towards Dinah as a spur for Green Arrow Arrow's character development. It's a discussion that I feel like didn't go on that much in comics before. It had definitely started earlier um, in comics, you know, with the um, the Carol Danvers stuff in Avengers Annual 10, I think really started that conversation a few years earlier. But it, it's a conversation that really came to the forefront through this sequence. And it, it's something that comic fans have been discussing for the last 30 years is basically the, the idea, basically debating misogyny in comics and the role of women, female characters in comics. I mean, we've talked about this here on the podcast, um, where I think there a lot of poor decisions are made by male creators because there aren't enough female voices in the room. Uh, they, there's just not that perspective. I don't think, though, that this is the case with this story. Mike Grell, one of the great things about Grell is that he is very open with his opinions and he will tell you exactly what he was thinking and why he was doing certain things. He's talked about this issue at length and like I said, he also addressed it in the story in issues one and two of the ongoing series. And basically he said the reason that he had Dinah go through this experience was 
just flat out um, to provide a spur for the character development of Green Arrow. And there's a specific thing that he wanted to do that he felt was necessary to have something this big and shocking happen. Prior to this issue, Green Arrow, you know, is well known as a very left-wing, a liberal, I don't want to say a pacifist because, you know, he's a superhero, but it was was very well established uh, as part of his character that he had a strict code against killing people. One of the most famous Green Arrow stories was a story that was originally supposed to run in Green Lantern, Green Arrow number 90 before the series was canceled abruptly with issue 89 in 1972. And it ended up being serialized in Flash numbers 217, 218, and 219. And it's a story where Green Arrow accidentally kills someone with one of his arrows while he's stopping a robbery or something. And he's he just is so traumatized by this, you know, accidental manslaughter that he quits being a superhero and leaves civilization just up and disappears and goes to a monastery to sort through and all of the issues that he's facing and just do some real soul searching because it, it it bothers him so much, like it's a traumatic event. And that's referenced in the first issue of Longbow Hunters, where Grell makes a point of having Ollie talk about his anti-killing code and that he just, there's only one time that he broke that. And, you know, it was a, a key moment in, in his the life of the character. And he talks about, you know, how important it is for him not to do that sort of thing. So in the next issue, though, when he finds the love of his life you know, hanging like a rack of meat being tortured. He's faced with his decision where he doesn't have any of his trick arrows, but in that moment, being the expert archer that he is, he can do a lot of things. He can shoot the guy through the hand, you know, pin him to the wall, him in the knee, whatever. He chooses in that moment to kill the guy. It's a deliberate choice. It's not like what happens in Flash 217 where he accidentally kills someone. He makes the choice to kill this guy. And then... He and Shadow, for later on in that issue, and then in the rest, in issue three, they kill several people, and Ollie is involved. And it's a watershed moment for the character, and Grell basically said that in order to get the character from point A, where he had an established strict code against killing, to get him to point B, where he was now the urban hunter that the premise of the series called for, he felt like there had to be an event big enough that Ollie would make that decision and change that drastically. And he thought that the only way to do it was to involve Dinah in the way that, that he did. It's an interesting argument. Um, it, it's basically going to the idea that Ollie is the main character and Dinah is a supporting character, which means that she's there to support his character growth and support his story arcs. What's interesting to me uh, in, a, in the broader sense of this discussion is that it echoes the comments that Ron Mars made when he was called out by Gail Simone when she created the Women in Refrigerators website that really brought this conversation about the role of female characters in comics to the forefront. And what Ron Mars said, for those who haven't read it, the story um, is infamous story where the, Kyle Rayner, the new Green Lantern, comes home and he finds his girlfriend has been murdered and stuffed in a refrigerator. And hence the term women in refrigerators, which has become synonymous with using female characters in this way. So Ron Mars, in, in an interesting essay he wrote to respond to this criticism, basically said that, yes, it's a valid criticism. This is a type of institutionalized 
misogyny in comics or institutionalized sexism, but it's a more subtle type. And the subtlety is that it's about character, the role of, of a protagonist, the main character versus the role of a supporting character. What Mars was saying is that because most of the main characters in comic books are men, the women are their supporting characters. And so supporting characters kind of by definition are there to drive the story of the main character. They're there for the main character to bounce off of and react to. And so as a result, bad things happen to supporting characters because it's necessary to spur the development of supporting characters. And since there are so few female characters who are main characters, a disproportional amount of the bad things that happen are going to happen to female characters since they are supporting characters. That's basically what Mike Grell was saying in 1987 in response to the criticism of the storyline. And I think it's a really interesting debate. The other thing that's very interesting about this is that it doesn't just spur this one moment. One thing that Grell, to his credit, really does well is he uses this as part of the character growth for both Ollie and Dinah, not just in the short term of this one story, but in the long term. The way the two characters react to this and deal with this moment impacts them and impacts their relationship with each other in subtle ways and in big ways for the next three years of storylines. We're going to see as we go through this, this is going to come up over and over again. And right off the bat, as I mentioned in issues one and two of the ongoing series, Grell immediately has the characters dealing with the issues. Dinah and Ollie go to a therapist to try and work through what they're dealing with in their relationship and what Dinah specifically is dealing with. And it's a very nuanced take by Grell on issues faced by survivors of trauma. Dinah has several things happening here. She is dealing with the feeling of helplessness of being captured and tortured and the loss of agency, the loss of power. She's also, though, on another level, dealing with the impact of having all he see her in this situation, having to be rescued by him. And more, she is feeling an intense guilt for what this has done to him and the decisions that he made. She feels responsible, in a way, for him changing as drastically as he did, for him making the choice to intentionally kill someone when this has been something he's been adamantly against. It's like a core, fundamental part of his character. And so she feels a guilt that he's made this decision on her behalf. There's a scene at the end of issue three of Longbow Hunters where she wakes up in the hospital and she says to Ollie, when I got out of this bed, I'm going to track down those guys that did this. I'm going to make them pay. And he says, I'm sorry, it's too late. I've already taken care of them. And she kind of knows right away what he means. And so she's struggling with both feeling guilty, but also angry that she had that taken away from her. She didn't have the chance to get her revenge isn't quite right. She didn't have the chance to get her dignity back by taking care of this problem herself. And so she's dealing with all this with the therapist and, you know, it has a big impact on her relationship with, with Ollie. Uh, there's a sequence in the first couple issues where he wants basically to have sex and again, this is a mature audience's series. There is a 
tasteful, but still for the time period, quite graphic sex scenes in the first issue of Longbow Hunters. And so when he, he basically wants to get intimate here and she can't, you know, she's just not ready um, for it. And so it's, it's really the whole situation is putting a big strain on the relationship. And, and Grell is not shying away from this. Yeah, there's a, there's a story, you know, there's a like a serial killer on the loose or something in these first two issues that all he's trying to hunt down or whatever. But it's kind of secondary to the character work going on. Now, as part of this, it, it gets a little convoluted where the therapist is actually the target of the bad guy in these issues. And it turns out that she had been kidnapped and tortured when she was a child. And Grell answers his critics in this story in another interesting way here. Because there's a lot of talk about whether or not Black Canary was raped. We see her hanging, like I said, she's naked, but she has this shirt on um, that's like ripped open. So, you know, when they're drawing it, you know, it covers uh, all the things that need to be covered for the sake of propriety, which seems a little silly given the context. But anyway... But she's naked and the guy torturing her, there's a second guy in the room and the guy torturing her basically tells the other guy that if he wants to rape her, now's the time. But it's not actually shown and it's never said one way or another by anybody in the story whether she was actually raped or not. Before I get into this too much further, I think it's also important to provide a little bit of context as to why this particular question sort of became such a focus of debate for comic book fans and critics who are discussing the issue of the treatment of women in comics during this time period. This was not an isolated event, not just in the terms of comics in general, but specifically at DC Comics during this time period. There seems to be what was what can only be really described as a systematic defilement of their major female characters. Starting during Crisis on Infinite Earths, where Supergirl is killed, followed up by this story here with Black Canary, one of the other most prominent characters of being tortured, possibly sexually assaulted. And just a few months after this, something very similar happens to Batgirl in the pages of The Killing Joke, where the Joker shoots her and then strips her naked and takes compromising photos of her that he then forces her father to look at. And while this is going on, George Perez over in the pages of Wonder Woman, starting in 1987 and running through 1988, is sort of providing a counterpoint to this, where the first 14 issues of the series are sort of explicitly dealing with rape, survivor's guilt, rape culture, and all of this in the context of female superheroes. So you kind of have this cauldron of D at DC going on where there's almost a bit of a schizophrenia where on the one hand you've got what's going on in Wonder Woman where they're sort of explicitly tackling these issues in a very sensitive and interesting way. And on the other hand, you have what seemed to be like an editorially mandated series of very questionable decisions. And the other thing to consider in this situation is that this sort of content is kind of new to mainstream comics. And this is a mature title from a company that historically was not known for doing mature books. This is a very new type of story that Grell is, is telling. I mean, sex is a new thing for readers at DC Comics. They're used to violence 
against characters. So violence against women, violence against black canary in particular, this is something that they have come to expect over the last 40 years of the character's existence. You know, black canary exists in a violent world. But none of these characters previously have existed in a sexual world. So in that context, I think it's understandable why fans and critics would be sort of laser-focused on this question of whether she was sexually assaulted. But Grell makes an interesting argument in this story where the therapist is talking to Dinah, just the two of them. She says to her, People always say to me, Oh, well, at least you weren't raped, as though that somehow makes it better. And then she goes on to say, you know, it, it doesn't make it better. In fact, that it kind of diminishes things. Like the focus on rape almost fetishizes that specific type of sexual violence and minimizes other types of violence against women. So what Grell is saying here to his critics, but also just um, as an observation, is that by focusing on whether or not she was raped, it kind of reduces the debate about violence and violence against women to sort of a one-note thing. And by taking sexual violence and focusing on the sexual part instead of on the violent part, you're fetishizing the entire idea of violence against women. He's basically asking, why are you so focused on whether or not she was raped? It doesn't matter whether or not she was raped. Whether she was or not, she was traumatized, she was brutalized, she was victimized. And that's all still valid, even if she wasn't raped. But by focusing so heavily on the question of sexual violence, people are invalidating Dinah's experience and the experience of women who have suffered from non-sexual violence. I personally think it's a... A really powerful argument. I mean, when I read this story originally, you know, 25 years ago or whatever, at the time, reading it, I think I just assumed, like most readers, that she was raped. When I go back and read it now, I think Grell intentionally left it open so that he could have this discussion. So, in the end, do I think this use of Dinah was justified? I think Grell ends up justifying it. I think it's certainly something that is worth debating. It's a very important topic, both in the real world and specifically in the way female characters are used in comic books. But I think that Grell thought this through. This wasn't a cheap stunt. He did this not just for character development, as he said, but also specifically to start this conversation and have this conversation. And I think as he plays this out over the next three years, he makes this worth it. So again, we're going to be talking more about this later on because this is going to continue to affect both of the characters for a while. But for now, let's pick back up where we left off with issues three and four. Issues three and four had another, you know, politically themed storyline. It also featured the return of Eddie Fires. So we see here, yep, sure enough, as we kind of suspected when he first appeared in issue three of Longbow Hunters, Grell has plans for this character to stick around. He's going to become much more important later on in the series, but he does appear again here. Issues 5 and 6 are another really important storyline, and another instance of Grell just grabbing the third rail with both hands. Like, 
you know, the discussion about violence against women and rape, both in how society deals with it and how it's dealt with in comic books, that wasn't quite... That wasn't quite enough for Growl, so he's just going to like go all out here. And in issue 5 and 6, we get this story where there's a gay bashing epidemic in Seattle where homosexual male couples are being targeted by gangs who have killed several people. So at the beginning, there's this... Um, these two men are celebrating their anniversary. They're walking through the park and these gang members show up and just beat one of them to death. And it turns out that one of the gang members who was involved in the attack was working for Ollie and Dinah at the flower shop that Dinah has started, the Sherwood Florist. And... So Ollie gets into it with him, and he's basically like, he's a smart kid, but because of the neighborhood he grows up, he grew up in, he doesn't feel like he has any other options. He's basically being pressured into joining the gang, and this attack was part of a gang initiation. And so Grella, at this point, already had a pretty extensive history of dealing with LGBTQ issues in his comics. He had a character by the name of Gray who appeared in John Sable, was a recurring, an ongoing supporting character who was a gay Broadway dancer. And he was one of the first mainstream gay characters in comics. Maybe the first. I don't, I don't know that for sure. I haven't studied this as much as I would like to. Um, but it's something where Grell had addressed some of these things before it was obviously uh, gay rights was obviously a topic that was important to grow and here he's combining it with the story about gangs and then when ollie tracks down the source of the the you know the people running the gangs it turns out that there's this high level drug dealer and one of his lieutenants is in charge of the gangs and the lieutenant was basically using these gang initiations that he was setting up as a way to get revenge on the gay community because when he was in prison, he was raped and got AIDS as a result. So I've got kind of mixed feelings about this storyline because in the, in, the, in the space of two issues, we're covering you know gay rights, the AIDS epidemic, gang violence, and the, the gang culture and, ha and how that's tied in with drug dealing and the inner city and how that leads to a prison pipeline for African-American males. And it's all tied up in this kind of over-the-top storyline. Like, as I mentioned, you know, Grell had a track record of, of having LGBTQ characters in his comics, but when you look back on it now, some of... Some of those are pretty ham-handed, some of the appearances and some of the topics, which I think is completely fair. It was something that was new in comics, and he was kind of trailblazing. And when you go back and look at media as a whole, a lot of time the trailblazing efforts are sort of clumsy, the clumsiest sort of in-your-face efforts, and then after a while they start to smooth out. Like, if you look at the treatment of race, for instance, 
on television, when you watch some of the stuff that's being done with Archie Bunker, it's a great show, but by today's standards, you just can't believe they're saying that stuff. It's kind of like that with some of the issues that Grell is dealing with. It hadn't really been dealt with. None of this stuff had really been dealt with in mainstream comics. And so he's kind of figuring out as he goes what's tasteful and what's not. And by today's standards, he's missing the mark. Uh, Like some of the stuff is just way over the top by today's standards. But I also think it's really important stuff. Like he, it's important in terms of developing that conversation in comics, but it's also important for Grell as a creator and it shows how this series is going to go. I mean, that mature label on the front cover of these Green Arrow issues, it's not just because there might be a sex scene, you know, it's because these are mature topics. He's dealing with real world shit here. Uh, And sometimes he goes a little over the top with it, but I think that's a price that's worth paying in order to get, in order to have some of these discussions in a medium that wasn't really discussing this stuff previously. So in issues seven and eight, um, the story kind of doesn't make much sense. There's a lot of coincidences and blah, blah, blah. It's about drug dealers, whatever. The important thing is that Dinah gets some tips about the drug dealing again. And so she is like, you know what? It's time. I'm ready to get back out there. And so she goes back out and gets in like some fights and beats up some guys and, and does this mission and sort of like, it's not that she gets over what happened to her, but it's sort of like she gets back on the bike. And at the end of this issue, like she feels better. She's worked through some stuff. She feels like herself. She talks in this issue about how she was afraid of what, how she'd react and what would happen when the time came, if she had to act. And at the beginning of this issue, she's sort of in a situation where she has to just react and she just reacts. Her instincts kick in and she's back to being the superhero that she is. And so it gives her a lot of peace of mind um, that she is able to function in that way. And so, you know, after this, basically, she realizes she's still herself. She feels like herself again and she's able to act like herself and sort of resume being the person that she was before this happened. And as part of that, she feels comfortable enough again to start having a sexual relationship with Ollie. And so in a way, it's not that, again, this is going to keep coming back. Um, There's a big storyline coming up much later in issues 31 to 34 that's really going to tie back into everything that happened in these in the Longbow Hunters in these first seven issues. But this is kind of where Grell starts shifting focus to some other things on a character level. And the arc that begins with Longbow Hunters, number one, is kind of put on the back burner for a while after issue eight. (laughs) 
So that wraps up the first part of my two-part discussion of Mike Grell's Green Arrow. Don't worry, though, there's plenty more coming in the second part where I discuss issues 9 through 80 and touch a little bit on the annuals and miniseries and crossovers and get into some of the things that Grell had planned for the series when he was unceremoniously dumped from the book. So I hope you join us next time. I hope you also enjoy this episode. And as always, visit us online at classiccomics.org to join in the conversation.